Good morning, C4 Church. Good morning to many of you watching and listening online. This is our reality as Canadians, is it not? It is. When the sun goes away at 4.30 and we look like this. Now we know that this is our experience every single uh, winter. And if you have young kids, you realize that not only you have to put this on, you have to put this on your children. What a task that is. Mm, mm, a lot of mm's. Yeah. But this is what we do up here. And yet there is something we all know about as Canadians. There is a moment, there is a day that something happens. It's usually in late winter or very early spring. And suddenly the temperature jumps for only a few hours to like plus 10. And we freak out. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? People start doing this. They're just like, oh, I'm going to be free. I am free. This, this is happening right now. And we start doing this, right? I cannot believe this. People start running downtown Toronto in their shorts. People, you know what I'm talking about, right? They start to, oh, I don't have to wear this anymore. This is freedom. We go, oh, never again do I have to do this. This is great. We go, oh, how free I feel after a winter. You know what I'm talking about, right? How many people have done that? Raise your hand. I, it is a moment where you feel so non-encumbered. It is a moment where we shed off this winter thing and suddenly there's that moment of freedom. Now for us again, it's like plus 10. People walking in Texas are like, that's still the end of the world. We're like, please, suck it up, please. You know, we can handle this. But there's that moment, right, where we have been living encumbered by all of this all winter long and then the temperature begins to grow. And what is that day telling us? That day is telling us that spring is sprung. And what comes after spring? What? Summer. And we know that the Muskokas and the Kawartha's are going to be open. We're going to be cottaging and we're going to enjoy life. See, it is a cycle. You can literally feel across our whole nation and in our city a change when the weather changes. People that have struggled all winter, especially those that have that condition called sad, suddenly it's like their body, their energy turns different. People start talking to each other. We get to know our neighbors again. Oh, right, you live over there. Like, there is this change. Now, I want this pile of clothes to be a symbol this whole sermon. Because what Paul is about to do in the second half of Ephesians is this. He is going to say, Christian, winter is over. Spring has come. Summer is coming. And don't you ever put on these clothes ever again. Don't go back to living in a condition where you are continually burdened down with something you don't need to wear. See, here's the crazy thing we're going to talk about today. Many Christians, even in this church, dress like this spiritually, though it's August. How weird would I look on Young Street? Well, maybe not at Young Street. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course. But how weird would it be if we dressed like this in the middle of the summer? You go, what's that guy's problem? But spiritually, so many of us look like this. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you've got it, electronic, physical, good, it's going to be on the screens. Chapter 4. We're in this new series in the second half of Ephesians called The Church United. And in my opinion, we're probably coming now to the most important section in the whole book of Ephesians. See, the second half of Ephesians 4 fleshes out everything we've already heard in chapter 1, 2, and 3 and half of 4. And these next 15 or so verses become the floor, the ground in which the whole rest of the book is built. And this is the declaration by Paul. It started last week. It gets stronger today. This is the only way a local church can stay together. This is the only way to have real unity. Unity between churches, unity in your family, unity between ministries, unity in your connect group, and unity between you and other Christians in this church. Now again, don't forget our theme. Our theme is we're all in this together. And the fear in the name of this series is the church united. Now what I'm about to preach on will deeply test if this is true or not among us and in us. But before we get there, and before we get to spring and summer, before we talk about what this means, and actually what this means, I need us to stop right now and be reminded of two very important things. First of all, what I'm about to preach on this morning and challenge all of us to do is not how you become a Christian. 
hear this this morning. What I'm about to preach on this morning is not how you become a Christian. For we that have already embraced Jesus, that we have met Jesus, we already know that you never get a relationship with the living God, the only true God, by being good by being religious, by being kind. You never can earn your salvation. You never can walk into the door. You never can meet the living God in a personal way by what you do. We've learned this already in Ephesians 2, 8. For it is by grace, that's undeserved mercy, that you've been saved, relationship, through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. See, this is one of the most offensive passages in all of human history because it is declaring that good works never work to connect you to spiritual things. This is deeply offensive because it actually says that every religious movement that has ever existed that says you can meet God, walk with God, know God, or become enlightened by what you do, by merit or, or religious reliance, is wrong. There is no crutch. This salvation deal is a God thing. Sinners stand with their hands entirely empty, one wrote. And God comes and gives us all we need. He calls us. He makes us alive. He gives us the ability to see him. Gives us the ability to respond. See, we respond by faith. I trust. I place my complete confidence in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. You have to, if you're going to meet God, admit you're weak. Empty, unwilling, and unable to meet God without him showing up and introducing you to Jesus. So we need to understand this morning that salvation is grace. It is undeserved mercy. This is deeply offensive to the world, but for we who have embraced this, is this offensive? Oh no. This is the biggest gift we've ever experienced in our lives. But everything I'm going to preach on this morning comes after this experience. Now here's the second thing I want to share this morning. Look at Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. This is where we started last week. This is also just intro. Paul said, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Here's the second thing we all need to get before we talk about winter. Christian, hear this this morning if you are one. Accept this and embrace this. You are a slave to Jesus. You are not your own. You've been bought by a high price, and obedience to your new Lord is the key to liberation. True freedom always comes from slavery to Jesus. Why? Because he loves us, he's perfect, he never makes a mistake, and he will lead our life much better than anything else we could do or anyone else could do on our behalf. When we accepted Jesus, we didn't just accept him as Savior. We declared him also Lord, King, Master. And so we are now called to live a life under his word and under his lordship. We are willing slaves. As he was a prisoner for the Lord, so we all are prisoners for the Lord. So now Paul says this. With those two things clear in our minds, if Paul was standing here today, he'd say, everyone, I want you to stop. Before I deal with unity, before I talk about how this is going to look in the next week, I need every one of you to look back. Before we look at the present and the future, I need you to look at the past. I need every single person within the earshot of my voice to be reminded of what you were before you met Jesus. I want to spell out in detail what the whole human race is apart from Jesus. See, you need to be reminded, he would say, of what was and what is so you don't stumble back, so you don't go back to deep winter. So how does he begin? He begins like this. In Ephesians 4, 17, you can read with me. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I testify, I insist, I declare. He's very un-Canadian. I command you. You have to obey what I'm about to say, not John Thompson, the word, because what I'm saying comes from Jesus, our Lord. You may not live like the rest of the culture lives. You may not be, again, what you once were. He says, don't live like Gentiles do. Now, Gentiles is just non-Jews. Now, what's perplexing about this, if you know a little bit, is that Ephesians is written to a primarily Gentile church. And so what he's really saying is, don't 
live like a Gentile, though you're a Gentile. Let me put it for us today. Dear Canadian church, don't live like a Canadian. We go, excuse me? You got a problem with my poutine? Like what? You know, like what? No, no, and here's his point. He's not saying don't enjoy the ethnicity of who you are. God actually loves the diverse. No, he's saying you may no longer live in the pagan way of life that you grew up with. You must abandon it. Now, some of you who've grown up in church are already doing this, because I'm one of them. You're going, but John, I didn't grow up in a non-Christian or a pagan or semi-spiritual environment. Well, here's what Paul would say to you. Well, then don't go adopt it now. None of us who are followers of Jesus have any right in any place in our life to go back to what he's going to call winter. Now, Paul says, from God's view, let me tell you what the average life looks like. When it comes to spiritual thinking, spiritual understanding, actual connection with God, he says that everyone's life, see the word, is futility. He says our thinking is meaningless, useless, worthless, empty. It is purposeless. It is, does not have purpose. It, it, it is futile. Now, Paul outlines this life from where we've all come from. He's about to say that spiritual ignorance produces alienation from God, which leads to the hardness of heart, which leads to continual lust, which leads to greed. But as we're about to see, Paul's issue here, as he reminds us of our history, is not just a list of sins. His issue has to do with who gets worshipped. His declaration, and it's right, is the chief sin in all of humanity is pride. Because we declare to God on a regular basis, I don't need you because I can run my own life or I will invent a God that I'm comfortable with who will run my life, but it's not the true living God. See, his issue for the whole world is this. Who gets worshipped? You? Your passions? Your wants? Your family? Your education? The God you've invented in your head so you're comfortable? Or God himself? He says that is futility, and it is everywhere. It says in verse 18 that they they are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their own hearts. He says that every human being without Jesus, Jesus is living in darkness. That is to say, because they have said no to the light of the world and hardened their heart, they no longer have light. Now, by the way, we've not done what we were supposed to do as humans. To know God, to glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. No, no, our thinking and our worldview has become dark. We've become foolish. We've become totally depraved. That is, sin has touched every part of us. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our body, our world. It says right there that they are separated from the life of God. Now, this is what we've already learned in Ephesians 2.1. It's tough stuff, but it's truth. It says, as for you, he's talking to the church, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Before you met Jesus, this was your condition. Now, Paul is saying this, and catch this again this morning. He's not saying that humans are just in trouble. It's not like we're just out of harmony with nature or or having a bad day or we have a bad spiritual cold or let's make it more serious. It's not even like spiritually we spend our whole life in hospice care spiritually because we're really sick. He says, no, no, you're not sick. You're dead. You're in a morgue. Your spiritual condition is in the funeral home. That is the true condition of humanity. And this is not just metaphor. He's saying that us as human beings are spiritually lifeless and motionless. Top to bottom, everyone is dead. There are no exceptions. Universal, utter, total, conclusive, it's us. Now some of you are sitting here today, Christians or not, and going, excuse me? Excuse me, that's not true. When I wasn't a Christian, or maybe I'm not a Christian, you can't call me dead. I mean, I I have family, and I love going to restaurants, and I love art, and I'm fully alive, and I have hobbies. I I look at my family and friends who aren't Christians, and, and they're not dead. How in the world can you stand up and say this? Well, I love what John Stott, the famous Anglican writer, wrote. He said, we should not hesitate to reaffirm that life without God, however physically fit or mentally alert a person might be, is living death. And that those who live it are dead even though they're living. Spiritually, we have no ability to connect with God. And our lives are marked by trespass and sin. Now, let's just be honest. If we're really going to be candid this morning, we know that's true. 
Every human being on earth, all of us have missed the mark. All of us have slipped and fallen and can't get up. All of us have fallen aside in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. They regularly violate God and his own will. Trespass. We go to places we're not allowed to go. It's a debt we cannot repay. It's the old English word iniquity. And that's why it says it leads to hardness of heart. Harder than marble. The human heart produces a deadly reaction, a chain reaction that all of us have shared in. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity for they're full of greed. He says, if you are separated from the life of God and you don't know him, then it produces hardness of heart and death. And then what happens? Well, you begin as a people, not just as an individual, the human race in small and large ways begins to live beyond feeling. Going beyond godly sorrow, beyond ethical pain. Nothing hurts even when it's wrong. Sensuality doesn't satisfy, it only creates a greater appetite. Now sensuality here in Greek means uncontrollable, outrageous sexual behavior. All sexual behavior outside of God's call of marriage between a man and a woman falls right here in a Christian worldview. And we've all been in that dark place. More and more, let's say it, in our culture, in our minds online, by ourselves and with others, we're giving in as a culture to everything that we can imagine, want or discover. We are trying as many sexual avenues as we can for pleasure and the fun of it. We're flaunting it. It's eyes wide open and eyes wide shut. Live and let live, our culture says. If I don't hurt anyone, why does it matter? I must do this. It feels right. It's my right. I was meant to be this way. You fill in the blank. Now these statements, absolutely. if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be saying these things. These statements make absolute sense when God is not involved. And this even makes sense when God is involved at a distance, but he has not been encountered and surrendered to as Lord. I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said what life life looked like without God. He said, separated from God, human beings curl around themselves like wooden shavings being planed from a piece of wood. It's a powerful image. All of us. The most religious, the most non-religious. Atheist, agnostic, Wiccan, Sikh, you fill in the blank. Muslim, Hindu, those who have the title Christian, every single one of us are in this place. Because in all those conditions, whatever you are, you are trusting in yourself and declaring you know what is right and wrong because you think so. Then Paul comes along and says, but that is not the end of the conversation. We're not going to drop into nihilism, never come back. There's not just some pitch black winter we never get out of. He says, no, no. Christianity, not the movement, Jesus himself has the answer to this. And many of you, he would say, sitting here today and online, you know this. And this is why he says in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ, were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Paul says, look to Jesus, church. Is he not our teacher? Is he not our subject? Is he not our environment and our atmosphere? Is he not the very center of all we are? Is he not our friend and brother and king and our hope? All of you that know him, all of you have firsthand knowledge of him. You talk to him. You've accepted him by faith. You're actually in relationship with him. And he has invited us into the life he lived. And our life must look radically different than our culture's life because the one we are following transcends culture and his name is Jesus. He says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. He says, church, don't go back to winter. Don't encumber yourself again with all that heaviness. You've already been set free from it. You don't need to put on heavy clothing. Don't you know you already are free? The problem is this. We like that let's just we like it it's like the exodus story most of you know that the people of god explode after joseph's death they become a nation a new pharaoh comes to the throne gets threatened by them because it's a nation within a nation enslaves them it's 1.2 million people in slavery they cry out to god and say god oh god oh god don't you love us where are you Supposedly, we have all this marriage contract. Where are you? God hears and sends who? Anyone know? Moses. 
Moses and Aaron come, and there's a profound power encounter. Plague one, plague two, plague three, plague four, multiple plagues. God does amazing things, and what happens? He sets 1.2 million people free. Out of Moses and Aaron, they go. They hit the Red Sea. What happens? The Red Sea splits. They go right through a great symbol of our coming baptism, right through the Red Sea. And what happens? They get in the wilderness. Suddenly, the enemy's upon them. One of the best, the superpower of the day, the the American-type army of the day, comes to destroy this ragtag people. God deals with them. And now they're in the wilderness. They're free. 1.2 million people with no latrine system. Anyone want to think about that? No food. No water in the middle of wilderness and you have been a slave for hundreds of years in your mentality. And they turn on their leader and they say, have you brought us out here to die? Wow, what a leadership moment. Are you joking me? I'm sure Moses freaked out. And they said this, let's what? Go back to Egypt. Let me paraphrase, because it's easier and we know it. Winter is like an abusive relationship that all of us don't want, but we still want to go back. And Paul says, don't you dare. Don't you know that the Son of God bled out so this doesn't happen anymore? Don't you know that you're supposed to be an example to a world that is totally depraved to show them a foretaste of heaven? Don't put on these old clothes anymore. I've given you new clothes, new clothes. Put off the old, put on the new. See, this verse is connected to the idea of baptism. Put off, we died to our old self with Christ. We've been raised from the dead, and now we walk in him. And this has to happen every day. This is a choice. He says to be made new, verse 23, in our attitude of our minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. Be what you are already, he says. And notice, this is not a command just to do a bunch of good rules so we feel good from the external. This is internal. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Scripture bubbling out of the wellspring of life. This is done by reading the Bible and empowered by the Spirit, obeying the Bible. It's what he says in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Each day, put on your new clothes. Live under all he has done. What did we learn in chapter 1, 2, and 3? All of that. Take on what Jesus has done. I love, though, and this is important. One wrote this. Our task is not to make or weave the new clothes. Our task is just to wear them. And how do you wear these clothes? By not just reading your Bible or just doing church, but obeying what God says. This is a great journey out of darkness into light. And Paul says, you may never go back here any longer. You don't need to go back here. You don't need to be burdened. The sun is already up. You don't need, this is done. Put on your new clothes. And then Paul brings it home. He says, so let me tell you what that looks like. How do you not go back to that when you're hanging out in this thing called community? Let me show you how you don't live like the Gentiles do within this place. Because, oh, I were a reminder this morning. Who owns C4? Me? No, no, Jesus. This is his body. This is his church. And we are his people. And so Paul says, if you want to live countercultural because you've been saved from this and you want to see it spill out into unity, here's how it goes. And he says in verse 25, these words. Here's what lasting revival looks like. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one, what? Say it loud. Body. We are the body of Jesus. We're not just some PTA group. We're not just some YMCA group. We're the actual body of Jesus. And truth is the lifeblood in every church. You want to kill a church? You want to kill your family? Want to kill your relationships? Just lie. Just exaggerate just enough. Speak in generalities. Only tell part of the story. Our culture is full of lying and exaggeration and deception and falsehood. And here's the real truth. Many of you lie so much as a defensive mechanism, you don't even know when you're lying anymore. And he comes along and he says, when you lie, it is a sin not only against yourself because it tarnishes your character. It actually bites. You bite. You assault the body of Jesus. It is a slap in God's face. And you hurt others. He says, white lies, same issue. Full lies, same issue. Lying with words. Lying in silence. How many of us commit the act of lying by our silence? Someone's lying in front of us or lying online on Facebook and we just say nothing. Lying. Or what about in body language? 
This one drives me nuts as a pastor and as a person. 90% of communication is nonverbal. And when someone's saying a lie in front, and people just go, or you just participated in the lie. He comes along and he says, there is no room for winter any longer. And if you want to create a culture of distrust, this will do it. He says, each person, each person in the church must make a decision right now, at this very moment, to say no to lying from this point forward. This is how the world works, Paul says. This is not how we as Christians work. We're not lying anymore. We're not that thing anymore. Take off the clothing of lying. and Be people of truth. Because our God is a God of truth. And where there is truth, there's what? Freedom. Well, Paul's not done. He says, if we're going to keep doing this and unity is real, he says, just like lying, there's something more. Anger. Anger both destroys the person, the family, and the community. He says in verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still anger, angry. Now, this is really important because this shows us that there's good anger. Not all anger is sinful. We need to be really angry about things. Injustice, poverty, racism, lies, the sex trafficking that's happening globally, drug culture. You fill in the blank. We need to be righteously angry and say, no more. But That's not what this is talking about. This is us loving our anger. I love when one person wrote this about anger. Can you listen closely? One of the, out of the seven deadly sins he wrote, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds... To smack your lips over grievances so long ago. To roll your tongue over the prospect of a coming bitter confrontation still to come. To savor that last tooth and morsel, both of the pain you're given and the pain you're going to give them back. It's actually a feast for a king if you think about it. But the chief drawback is what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. He says, do not in your anger sin. And he says, you let reconciliation happen by nightfall. I mean, this is an agreement between me and my wife. We do not go to bed angry. Sometimes we're up a long time. (laughs) And it's not the kids this time. Because if you don't, then you wake up the next morning, Cheerios aren't so nice, and you know what happens. Now, some of you are saying, well, John, I want to reconcile, but the person's dead, or I can't, I can't be near them. They're actually dangerous, or I don't know where they are. Fine, then you go to the Prince of Peace, and you lay it down. But you may not nurse this sin. You may not keep it warm. You may not, because the consequences, Paul say, is not that just you cannibalize your own soul, but something so much more horrifying can happen. And it doesn't matter whether you believe this can happen or not, it will. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the what? I'm sorry, you didn't, what side, say, what? Yeah, the devil, so Canadian. The devil, a foothold. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, hold on a second. This is very important. This is really significant. Foothold, in Greek, means a foot inside. It's the word topos, which means locality, occasion, opportunity, part, passenger, place, places, reef, regions, or room. Paul is saying, Christian, baptized Christian, by, by fire and by water, connect group going Christian, Christian who loves Beth Moore and reads every one of her Bible studies, right? All the good, right? Listen, if you don't deal with anger, you as a Christian will give an actual demonic being influence, area, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, room to live inside of you. This is not a joke. It's like what Lori was preaching at the beginning. Imagine yourself as a house. The house is owned by Jesus. Look at verse 30. Everyone do it quickly so you're going to be okay. Verse 30 says that we're sealed by who? The Holy Spirit. This is not talking about possession. We're possessed by who? The Holy Spirit. Who called us? God the Father. Who has made us his children? God the Son. We're adopted, elected. None of that is in dispute here. We are owned by Jesus. But this is talking about internal influence in your mind, in your will, and in your body. So you're a house, and Jesus is in the house, and he has the deed to the house, and you've welcomed into the house. But because of anger, as an example that you keep nursing and never dealing with, you open a left bedroom window. And squatters are now in that left bedroom. And the squatters are actually real, and they're there, and they don't own the house, 
but you have decided it's okay that they are there. See, imagine this is the church. This is our church right here. Isn't it beautiful? Right? Full of life-giving water. And then some of us, and by the way, just as a side note, anger is not the only thing that can do this. Every sin Paul is talking about, if you habitually keep playing with fire, any of these can become doors. And we've got life-giving water. And some of us, some of us go, you know what? I don't care. I have the right. And this beautiful life-giving water starts getting filled with blackness. The water's still there. The church is still there. But now, the church is contaminated. You see, you may go, well, that's my problem, not yours. Oh, yes, it is my problem, because I think we're one body. And what I do in private affects who? All of us. And Paul says, this is the problem. Life-giving water that's still there gets contaminated by the very presence of evil. This teaches that we can yield ourselves to a demonic presence even though we're sealed by God. Some of us have allowed Trojan horses into ourselves, into our families, into our church. You're saying, John, you're actually saying a demon could be in me but doesn't own me? Yes, is exactly what I'm saying. How many demons are crawling around in us, in our connect groups, in our family, in this worship service because we've played with fire like anger or lust or covetousness and we didn't think there could be supernatural consequences? But this is war, everyone. This isn't a Tim Hortons line. And this isn't nice Canada. This is war. Just because you don't think it could happen or it doesn't fit into your theology or you don't really, really believe in demons because you know that's something else or you don't feel anything inside of you doesn't mean it's not happening. And God comes and he says, don't you know I'm not angry at you? I've done this. I just don't want this to happen to you. And some of us say, actually... Maybe I'm just okay with that. We wonder why unity is so hard in church. We wonder why churches never seem to have enough faith, power, holiness, why prayer lives never seem to take off. We wonder why real lasting change, deep impact change within a church rarely is seen, let alone seeing a genuine awakening. Could it be that we are flirting with the world, dancing with the flesh, and we've kissed the devil's mouth? This is the great threat to church unity. Paul says lying is dangerous, anger is dangerous, and he talks about footholds, but then he goes farther. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands so they have something to share with those in need. Theft is a major problem in our culture. I was reading an APA report, an American Psychological Association report. They did a symposium on theft in workplaces and chain stores. And here's what, I, I was shocked to read this. They said they lose $8 billion a year due to theft. In the United States, 10% is clerical error, so it's not true theft. 30% is shoplifting. I go, that makes sense. 60% is stuff stolen by employees. If you're cheating on your taxes as a Christian, repent. If If you are illegally downloading music or movies, it's not right. That's winter. You say, oh, but John, they're so rich. Kanye doesn't need the money. Repent. It's not yours. You think that you can do this and God doesn't see? We're supposed to be not just people of integrity, but people of what? Worship. If you're deceiving people in your business, if you, I don't care if you're stealing staplers or millions of dollars. Return them. Stealing people's reputation by your words. Work hard as a Christian, Paul says, so you can be generous. This is so crazy. I want you to work harder so you can give more away. How countercultural is that? He says, keep going, verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I love the ending of this because he knows that when we're talking, we're always looking for an audience. The first act in the Bible was God spoke and creation came to be. Think about it. The power of words are huge. Paul says, if you want to have unity in the church, real product of revival, no unwholesome talk. The word unwholesome comes from the idea of spoiled fish, rotten fruit, and stones that crumble. Anyone smelled rotten fish before? Raise your hand. How lovely is that? 
He says, your words can smell up, rot out, and crumble the foundation of C4 in minutes. No rotten, no putrid, no slander, no contemptuous talk. No talk that works to bring other people down, to attack, to break a person in front of them or someone who's not here. No blasphemy, no slander, no sexual talk to get someone else going. No lying, no chattering, complaining, and murmuring about church. No arrogant boasting, no cursing, no spreading rumors, no lies, no induendo, no gossip. This is God's house. We are God's poppy. We are God's body. We are not our own. Our mouth is owned by Jesus. It was St. Augustine who was so upset about this issue as a church leader that he put actually a sign over his dinner table and it said, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. What would happen at C4 if this was over every Swish LA booth today? What would happen if this was at every connect group? How would you talk about this church? Leaders, people, other churches. As a Christian, he says, it's done. As Christians, we should not be involved in habitual anger, lying, stealing, or harsh talk. And why do all this? Because we just want to feel better? Because we actually know that if we do these things, it will be better for us? No, no, it's deeper than that. This is about worship. Don't you understand that we worship our God by what we do, not just what we say? And Paul connects it down here in verse 30 and says these words, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Don't live a life that contradicts what you already are and what you will be forever. Don't push down, attack, cause pain, and ignore God's Spirit within you. Who keeps us all together? The Holy Spirit. Who introduced you to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Who allows you to understand the Bible when you read it? The Holy Spirit. Who is the one that keeps you and when you face God's judgment, the Holy Spirit is going to be your seal. When God looks at you, he's going to see Jesus' blood and the seal of his spirit. This guy, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, is our ultimate security blanket and we grieve him all the time. Grieve means to cause personal pain. This is not Star Wars. He's not a force. He's a person. And every time we choose to get involved in disunity in the church, we are saying to the God who has sealed us, loves us, convicts us, it even says in Romans, prays for us when we don't know what to do, we are saying, I'm not interested today, God. Move to your corner. But this is, he's the one who makes us like Jesus. He's the one who gives us spiritual gifts and gives us character, right? Paul says, don't grieve him. Don't grieve him. He's the one who introduces you to truth. Do not allow habitual sin to take your mind and your body. Do not allow yourself to actually make pacts with the devil even though you don't think you really are. Don't give in to habitual anger, habitual unforgiveness, habitual lust, habitual lying. This will only break your heart, break the church. It will bring you back to winter again. And let me tell you from experience, you do not want the supernatural presence of evil in you because the impulses and the actions and the temptations will be exacerbated in such a degree Agree that you will not even know what your own thoughts are sometimes. And when the evil one shows up among a church or in a person, he steals victory. He's darkness invoking. His work removes the things we desperately want. Sabbath, sanctuary, and peace. So church, he says, verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Bitterness is disappointment that you've been treated unfairly, so you get resentful about it. Anger or rage is uncontrolled violent anger. Anger is anger. Brawling doesn't just mean a good bar fight. Brawling actually means shouting at the top of your lungs to hurt people. Slander is speaking false statements about people so you know you can destroy them. By the way, that counts for Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Just want to say that. And malice is the desire to harm someone. I mean, if we had the true moment, to be honest, this morning, many of us sitting in this room want other people hurt because they deserve it. And some of us in this church actually want people dead, but we don't want to say it out loud. Paul comes along and says, not anymore. We're done with that. That's all going to burn in hell forever. We're going to a place where all this disappears, and we're the forced taste of it now. He comes and he says, get rid of this. 
Because all these choices hurt, they wound, they break up, they destroy human relationships. Sin breeds more sin, violence more, more, more violence. But here's how we're supposed to respond. See, as Christians, we don't own ourselves, so we don't own our speech. We don't own our relationships. We don't own our, our sexual lives, our sexual identities. We don't own our personal rights. We have decided to let Jesus be Lord. So the question this morning is how do we overcome the shadows that are so long over so many of us here at C4 in some degree. Well, he says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Think about Jesus' forgiveness, would you please? Like, really? See, if you really believe that you were dead spiritually, if you really, 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 really believe that everything that Paul said at the beginning is true of you in the past, then you know the depth of Jesus' forgiveness. Don't you know? Every time that we sin, everything we've forgotten and not forgotten, everything that haunts us and doesn't haunt us, every thought, every word, every action that violates God's word, don't you know that every time we do it, Jesus bends down and says, I would love to serve you today. I will forgive you. He says, oh, it's finished. When I said it on the cross, I meant it. It's on my body. He says, because I have extended such profound humility and grace towards you, I demand this of you towards others. But only when you realize how serious and trouble we were before will your quotient of forgiveness grow. Because if you don't think you were really dead, then you think you were better than you were. And your forgiveness grows smaller because you don't believe Jesus really forgave you for everything. He comes and says, this is how you overcome. You forgive. Jesus said, give us today our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Can I say it one more time? Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's a lie from hell or somewhere else, but it's not from us. You can't forget half the things that hurt you. And forgiveness is not lack of justice, man. If you've done something, you still need to pay for it. But forgiveness is a choice. It's a crisis of the will. It is giving up your right to God to hurt someone back. I love this definition our care pastor uses here. Forgiveness is assuming personal responsibility for the emotional pain and consequences of another person's sin. So Paul comes and he says, we're the church united, right? Paul says that we are the church, the literal body of Christ on earth to demonstrate to the world that there's hope. So many of us have prayed for personal renewal In the last three years, we've prayed prayers like, Oh God, do anything you must in me. For your glory, my freedom, so the world sees Jesus clearly. Hundreds of us have been praying, Oh God, sweep across this whole church, children all the way to seniors. Oh God, move. And we've been praying, begging God for an awakening where thousands of people in Durham would encounter Jesus. See, the problem is, though, we're praying for revival, and it's right. But I don't think we still fully understand what we're asking for, the consequences. You see, we're asking God for revival, but we're not resolving the issues that prevent it. See, rage, unforgiveness, and then you've got lying, right, over here, and then over here, right? Just do it. Just keep doing it. All the stuff. It's all over you. Look. Right? Look at it. This is what is produced when we don't resolve what Paul preaches on. So then we pray, right? And we say, oh God, oh God, do a new thing in our church. We're desperate, we're desperate for this, right? And then God comes with great power and great authority and he pours new water in But this is still happening. Anger, rage, bitterness, unforgiveness, sensuality, greed, covetousness. And we keep saying, oh God, oh God, you've got to do something different in my life. And you've got to do something in my kid's life. And God, I want so many people to meet Jesus. And he says, I know, I want this too. But it just keeps spilling. And as his water comes in, it spills out. That's why revival doesn't last in churches. Because we're not actually willing to deal with the holes in the soul of a church 
and let God's duct tape, to be Canadian, be over us so life-giving water doesn't seep out. Be filled with the Spirit. So what are we going to do about this? Well, you can't resolve all of this in a moment, but we are going to do something right now. We are going to pray about this. Because this is actually what normal Christianity is supposed to look like. So, here's how we're going to pray. We're going to pray first and foremost over each issue that he talks about. And if you've been sitting here this morning, and I want to say, don't lose focus. If you're saying, oh, that was a great sermon, John. Man, I wish that person was here. Anyone raise their hand in confession? Then probably the sermon is more for you than you think. We're going to pray over each category. Bitterness, unforgiveness. Can you put the first prayer up? Here's how we're going to do it. You you online, you can do this too. I'm just going to pray the first thing. Lord Jesus, I say your name. Confess, renounce, reject my involvement in bitterness. And then I'll go to the next one. Then together at the end, we're going to pray this last thing. And then next, what we're going to do is we're going to pray about forgiveness. And so let's just do this together. You get yourself ready. Don't resist if the Lord's been convicting you. Don't grieve the Spirit. Because we're really serious about God's work among us. So, let's deal with lying first. So if this is you, just pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I say your name. Confess, renounce, and reject my involvement in lying. Next is bitterness. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement in bitterness. Lord Jesus, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement in rage. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement in anger. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement in malice. Lord Jesus Christ, I renounce and confess and reject my involvement in unforgiveness. Sexual immorality. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement in sexual stuff. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess and renounce and reject my involvement with lying or speech that is harsh or untrue. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us for so many things we've done. We would ask you as C4, Holy Spirit, to now come and close and seal all doors that may have been opened to us or me and my children and my family. Seal them with the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now about forgiveness. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that your kindness has led me to repentance. And I confess I've struggled to extend extend that same patience and kindness towards others that have offended me. I've been harboring bitterness and resentment. And I pray during this moment of self-examination, you would bring to my mind those people I have not forgiven in order that I may begin. So Holy Spirit, now come among us and online and bring any person to mind. Have them. This is a holy moment. Lord, I choose to begin the forgiveness process for, and you can say the name, for that experience made me feel, say the offense or what you feel. For some of you who just started thinking this is crazy and not real, no, it is, that's a lie. Lord, I release all these people now to you and I release my right to seek revenge. I choose not to hold on to bitterness and anger and I ask you to heal my damaged emotions in Jesus' name. Lastly, uh, as one of your pastors, I declare this, in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of this church, I would call all things that have rights, grounds, accesses, and privileges to people in our church because of doors they've opened. They have confessed their sins, and so now you have to leave our church in Jesus' name. You must go to the foot of Jesus Christ never to return. To us, our church, our connect groups, everything, you have to go. 
I would ask, O oh God, in your mercy, strongholds would be broken in this church now and that topos would be removed in this church. In Jesus' name, you can't come back. Every time you try coming back, you have to see Jesus among us. And lastly, we pray, O oh God, re- renew, revive this church. Help us to be kind and compassionate, forgiving and thankful. Help us to read our Bible and obey it. And God, help this image of pouring out water not to be us any longer. Oh God, do not relent until this church is different at its core. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and respond with just a song. This is a a holy moment. I mean, the amount of work that's just begun. There will be much more to do. But as we respond with this song, be reminded, be reminded, be reminded that God has forgiven you. I want to declare to many of you this morning, not because I have authority, but the Bible says so, according to 1 John, these truths. If you confess your sins to God, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Keep praying for renewal and revival and awakening. Keep asking God to reverse this. Keep asking God to make us kind and compassionate. Keep praying that we do not play church, but we are the church. Keep praying because the more God does work in our lives, the more duct tape is put back on the church, the more our lives will reflect Christ and the more our neighbors will say, you truly are different and awakening will come. Lord bless you for your courage today, for being honest. Amen.